Good morning. morning. Good to be together again, that the Lord has given us another chance to worship together, to praise Him, to hear His Word read and preached. I do not take for granted that Sunday after Sunday the Lord has allowed us to gather together, and it is a gift of His grace, and I hope that you see it as such as well. This morning we continue in our series looking at the last three books of the Old Testament, And we start the book of Zechariah this morning, Z-E-C-H, not Z-A, so make sure we get that one right as we continue. We spent three weeks in the book of Haggai, and we saw there some wonderful demonstrations of the covenant faithfulness of God, and now this morning we see again the faithfulness that God has towards his people as we start the book of Zechariah together. Now, Zechariah was a prophet who ministered to the people of God around the same time as Haggai did. It wasn't just an overlapping ministry as if passing the baton, but they actually ministered together, encouraging the people of God as they had returned from their exile in Babylon. When we started this series, I had encouraged you to also read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah as we're going through this section because Ezra and Nehemiah provide for us some of the historical context for Haggai and Zechariah. So if you go and read the book of Ezra, you'll see in chapter 5, let me just read you a verse here, chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was with them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, that's a familiar name to us, right? We saw him in the book of Haggai. And Joshua arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So we have these prophetic ministries of both Haggai and now we're going to see Zechariah ministering together, but there's slightly different emphasis that each of these men have or that the Lord gave them. So for Haggai... His emphasis was motivating the people to rebuild the temple, right? They'd come back from exile. The people are still kind of scattered around and not knowing exactly what's going on. And God, through the prophet Haggai, come to the people and say, get to it. Why are you all living in houses while my house sits in ruins? And Haggai motivates them. God comes to Zechariah, and the emphasis here is not so much on rebuilding the temple, but rebuilding the people, restoring the faith in God that they ought to have had, the faith that would motivate them to be obedient and to follow the Lord in what they were called to do. The, the literal and physical return of the people back to Jerusalem was meant to illustrate and to prompt a spiritual return to God. As they had been in captivity, as they had come back from captivity, the people had lost hope, they'd lost the vision They had strayed from what God had told them to do and had relied on themselves. And now God says, come back, return to me. It's important that you rebuild the temple, but it is also very important that your faith, your trust in me is rebuilt. And that is Zechariah's ministry in a lot of ways. Now, as we study the book of Zechariah together over the coming weeks, we are going to see A lot of things that are probably foreign to us, language, illustrations, visions, things that because of our separation from this context are very strange to us. We just don't normally speak about things that we're going to see here in the book of Zechariah. So 
Because the word of God is living and active and all of this has been recorded for our good, we are committed at Grace Bible Church to preaching all of the scriptures. But I want to ask for your help in, in two ways as we go through the book of Zechariah. There's two things that you can do that will help both me and will help you as we study together. <clears throat> First of all, pray for me. This is not my wheelhouse This is not where most of us gravitate towards to the minor prophets. But as we labor together in the word, as we seek to understand what the Lord has done in the past for his people, what he has promised to do for us, pray that God would open our understanding, that we would be encouraged. This is not just some removed historical account that does not matter. This is the word of God, every bit as much as the New Testament So pray that as I prepare and work that the Holy Spirit would open my understanding so that I can feed you from the word. That's my desire. Second thing you can do to help is to read the text ahead of time. Oftentimes we get to the end of the week and either Allie or myself will send an email out with some reminders of things and we'll often encourage you to read the text. The reason for that is that if you can get a handle, at least on the language, if you at least are familiar with what's going on, maybe when we come to it on a Sunday morning, there won't be as much lag time. So when we come to parts of Zechariah and we see the woman who gets put in a basket with a lead cover over her and two other women with stork wings fly her away, that's coming. I just wanted to give you a little heads up of where we're going here. Maybe it won't be quite so shocking because you've read it. And you come with questions, and Lord willing, by the power of his Holy Spirit and through the preaching of his word, our questions will be answered, our faith will be strengthened. I am so eager to get into this book because I know that the word of God is powerful. So pray for me, pray for all of us, and read the text ahead of time. I think it's going to be really helpful. Now, this first chapter that we're going to look at today is divided up into three sections. And we're going to look at the first two sections this morning. We'll pick it up next week in this third section. But before we do that, let's pray together. And let's ask that the Lord would be our helper today. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, who is, as we've already heard, the mediator between us and you and the only right we have to approach you in prayer is because of what Jesus has done. And we don't treat this as a light thing, Father. When we approach your throne, we know who we're approaching, the God of the universe, the Lord Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the sustainer of all life, the giver of all things, the preventer of all things. Lord, you are the one who holds the world in your hands. And so we come to you this morning hungry and needing to be satisfied. We come ignorant, needing your wisdom. And Father, we ask that you would meet us here. By your spirit and through your word, would you feed our hearts and our souls and motivate our obedience through your spirit? It's the only hope I have, and it's the only hope that all of us have here this morning. So, Father, come and do the work that only you can do. And as a result of our time together, would our hearts be strengthened and would Jesus Christ be praised? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'll invite you to open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 1. 
This is the second to last book in the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, just go back two books and you'll be there and follow along. We'll read verses 1 through 6 and go from there. So Zechariah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, says the Lord of hosts. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Now, as we start this chapter, you see three names, three generations of men that are listed here. We see Zechariah, his father, and his grandfather. Now, in the Old Testament, when we see names with the I-A-H ending, the ah, that is short for Yah, and a part of God's name, Yahweh, and it gives significance to the name, more than just a representation of who the purpose the person is. Think of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Zechariah here. It gives some meaning. I want to share what these names mean because I think it's really significant. So Zechariah means the Lord remembers. His dad's name, Berechiah, means the Lord blesses. And his grandfather's name, Ido, is the word for time. So if you put these together we see almost a thesis statement for what this book is going to be about. And it would be, the Lord remembers and blesses at his set time. All of the words of the Lord are significant. And it's really interesting to find out that there's meaning beyond just... Remember when we were in Haggai, we talked about the significance of the calendar dates. How those weren't just time stamps, but they correlated to things. Well, here... The names are also significant. It is a reminder to all the readers, to all the hearers of this message that the Lord has not forgotten his people, that he will remember and he will bless them in his time. Now these first six verses, we see God calling his people to return to him, to repent of their sins and to come back into covenant relationship with him. And he gives them three reasons why they should return to him. First of all, the people should return because of God's wrath. Look at verse 2. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, verse 3, say to them, return to me. Now the manuscripts here say the Lord was angry with great anger. We think that it's kind of redundant to repeat things at times. But in the Hebrew language, this is emphasis God is not just disappointed. He's not just a little bit frustrated. He is angry because his people have not followed him and have not turned from their ways and come against him. The call that God says, return to me, 
is a call for his people to avoid the covenant consequences of their behavior. We've talked about this a lot in the last week, so let's give a quick refresher. When God establishes a covenant with his people, he says, I will bless you for your obedience and I will punish you for your disobedience. And we've talked about the fact that God's covenant-keeping faithfulness means that he does both of those things. And so here he's saying, remember, I was angry with your fathers and I demonstrated my wrath to them. So look at that and return to me so that you don't find yourself in the same position bearing the consequences of my just and holy wrath. God loves his people, but he will not violate his covenant because of his love. He will act in covenant faithfulness. And if they continue to pursue this folly of idolatry and self-reliance and ignorance of God's will, then they will suffer the consequence of his wrath. The next reason God calls them to return is because of the warnings he gives. Look at Zechariah 1.4. Do not be like your fathers. Again, pay attention Hear what I'm saying, do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention. God is warning the people not to make the same mistake. And you know what? This is why we have an entire Bible of history and lessons and instructions and encouragements because we too need to remember and hear the warning of God. If you continue in this way, if you pursue selfishness, if you pursue the idols of the world, then you will face the consequences of God's wrath. He warns the people. And this is not just an Old Testament thing. Think of the book of Hebrews. And all of the encouragement, all of the warning we see there to pay much closer attention to our Savior, to not neglect the great salvation that God has provided to us through Christ. God is a God, yes, of covenant-keeping faithfulness, but He warns and instructs His people so that we hear and return to Him. And He's saying this to His people in Zechariah. Hear me, remember what happened Didn't turn out so well for them, did it? He says, your fathers, where are they again? Well, they passed away. They didn't last. But God says, my word lasts. So hear the warning. Return to me. Don't be like them. Get your act together and come back to me. Third reason, God calls the people to return to him through his words. So because of his wrath, by his warnings, and finally now through his words. Verse 6. But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants and the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? That just means, did they not outlast? Okay? So just like we said, the forefathers thought they were so spiffy with their way of acting and chasing around all the stuff they were chasing. And God says, no. You follow my ways. You follow my plans. Where are they again? Oh, that's right. They passed away. But my word is here. So God calls his people back because of his word. When God speaks a command, when he issues a warning, when he gives exhortation or instruction to his people, God's people, us and them, ought to attentively listen to the voice of the Lord and pay attention to his words. And just in case, I mean, I can just imagine the people hearing this 
and hearing, okay, we've we got to pay attention to God's words, but what if we miss it? What if we're not there when the prophet speaks? Or what if somehow we don't have access? Remember the book of Hebrews, the very first verse of the book of Hebrews. What does it say? Does anyone remember? Long ago, this is Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Many times, many ways. God is not after hiding his will and just leaving his people to try to figure it out on their own. He clearly communicates through the history of redemption what his purpose is, what his will is, and how his people can follow in obedience to both of those things. Many times, many ways, if you don't get Zechariah, then maybe Haggai resonates with you. And if you don't understand Haggai, then maybe you need to go to the Psalms. And if the Psalms don't track, then go to the Torah. The point being, God has clearly communicated his will through his words. Therefore, his people are, get this, without excuse. Many times, many ways. And you and I, living when we do, are infinitely more without excuse than these people. Any one of us could pull up a Bible on our device in less than five seconds. You could have an amazing sermon playing in your earbuds within 30 seconds. You could find theological resources and Christian living helps and every other kind of information you could ever want readily available. There is no excuse for you and I to claim ignorance on what God desires. None. So hear the word of the Lord Hear the warnings and return to him. That's the message that's being communicated in these first six verses. Now, let's continue. Open your Bibles again. Let's read verse 7 through 17. This is the first of eight visions that Zechariah has. So after hearing this warning, this call for return, now we shift gears. So start in verse 7 with me. This is a little bit later. Now, on the 24th day, of the eleventh month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered, Gracious, and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. 
My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall once again flow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. This passage, like I just said, is the first of eight visions that Zechariah has all on the same night. Now maybe you've been kept awake at times because of worry or illness or whatever, but this is one crazy night. These visions stretch from chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through the end of chapter 6. And I can imagine that Zechariah was pretty wiped out when he woke up that morning because there is a lot happening. So when we are reading scripture that contains uh, this kind of imagery, prophecy, uh, figurative language, this vision kind of stuff, we need to identify what is being represented in the vision and how that fits into the context of the passage. So I just want to explain a few things about what Zechariah sees in this vision and then we will try to apply it to the passage. So let's start with the horses. What's going on with the horses? The point, I think, of the different colored horses is more significant than the horses themselves. Horses were, of course, a symbol of power and of strength, especially of military might, but there is national significance even to the colors that are communicated. Imagine this, if someone came to you, and by the way, if this ever happens, you need to tell me, but if someone comes to you and says, hey, I had a vision of three eagles flying, uh, one was red, one was white, and one was blue. Now, we would immediately know, because of where we live, that it probably has something to do with America, right? With the eagle is kind of the national symbol, the colors. We get that. We understand that. Similarly, horses, not only being a symbol of strength, also had color representation. So when we see the color red, this often represented war. When a nation went to war, they would fly a red banner, the color of blood, or the horses were draped with red cloth. White is the color of peace, meaning the absence of war. Now this third color, they translated sorrel, is kind of a speckled brown, kind of a mix thing, and this would represent tension. Not at war, but not at peace. Kind of something in the middle, this unknown kind of, mm, what's going on kind of a thing. Okay, so that's the color significance. Now the horses are standing in a grove of myrtle trees, in a glen, that just means a valley, down in a valley type thing. Myrtle trees were so common in Israel and grew everywhere that they became known as sort of the national plant and sometimes Israel is even referred to as the myrtle because they were everywhere there. So Israel, represented by these myrtle trees, is down in the valley. Now being in a valley, we know, represents humiliation. They're not at the top of their game. Things aren't just going fabulously for the nation. They've been in captivity, and they've just returned. And as we saw in the book of Haggai, crops weren't cooperating, business wasn't cooperating, things were not going as well. The temple building had stalled out. Now, we know this is because of their sin and because of their inaction and other things. But what this vision is representing is that the nation of Israel is down in a time of great humiliation. Zechariah sees all of this, 
and he sees a man standing in the midst of the myrtle trees. And in verse 11, we see that this is the angel of the Lord. Now, oftentimes in Scripture, when we see mention of the angel of the Lord, it is referring to the Lord himself. And often the angel is doing things that only God could do. You can write down Genesis 16, Exodus 3, Judges chapter 6, and there's many other passages that show the angel of the Lord, definite article, the angel of the Lord, acting in ways that only God acts. And I believe that the angel of the Lord is none other than the second person of the Trinity, the one that we know as Jesus Christ, revealing himself in visible form before the incarnation, before he came to Bethlehem, as a demonstration to his people. This visible manifestation of his presence is called a theophany, a vision of a visible God. Now there's a couple reasons why I think this is the case, so hang on and let me explain myself. I think this is the case in Zechariah 1 first because we see in verse 10 that it was the Lord who sent out these other riders, these angelic messengers on the horses, verse 10 These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And now when they come back with their account of what they've seen, they answer and give their account to the angel of the Lord. Now we know from other places in scriptures that angels are God's messengers. They are his servants. They do his will. So when they are seen obeying the angel of the Lord or bringing him the result, we should understand this is no mere angel. These angels are subservient to him. Second reason I think this might be the case is that when the angel of the Lord receives the report, they come back and they say, okay, everything's at rest. He, in turn, kind of calls out the Lord and says, hey, what's going on here? Why are things at ease around us? Now, that is not something an angel would do. They are not in the position to question God, to doubt God's plan. Psalm 103, towards the end of the psalm, says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Angels do not question God. They do not come back to God and say, Hey, wait a minute, why is this going on? They are servants who do the will of God. Therefore, when this angel of the Lord addresses God Almighty and says, how long are you going to let this happen? This is no mere angel. So here's what's going on. Zechariah sees the angel of the Lord, who I am saying is a pre-incarnate Christ, standing in the midst of Israel in her humiliation and is sending these messengers to patrol the earth and to see what's going on around us. What's the, give me a status report. What's going on? Now this should not be seen. Don't stretch this too far as if God doesn't know what's going on and he has to employ some horsemen to go see what's going on in the world. This is imagery. This is vision language and we need to understand it as such. Now on the surface, the report that these riders bring back to the angel of the Lord seems good. Right? Look at verse 11. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Great. Everyone's resting. All is at peace. Right? Well, not so much. 
Rather than being glad at the news of this rest or this inaction, it seems to sort of irritate the angel of the Lord or stir him up to probe and to ask questions. In verse 12, the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? Does that seem like an appropriate response? So these messengers go out to patrol the world. They come back and they say, yeah, everything's at rest. And then the one who hears goes, wait a minute, that's not right. Is that that what you would think if you sent messengers out and they came back and said, yep, everything's good? Well, this is not a good report. And here's why. The fact that the nations surrounding Israel were at peace, were at rest, meant that God had not yet brought upon them the punishment that they deserved for the way they had treated his people. How many times as we read through the Psalms do we hear this same refrain, how long, O Lord, because it seems like those who hate God, those who ignore God, are prospering. They're doing great. Their crops are growing, their horses are going, everything is going well for them, and yet the people of God remain in struggle, spinning their wheels, not gaining traction. And the angel of the Lord looks at this and says, how long, Lord? Will the nations around be at ease while your people continue to suffer the consequence of their sins? In response to this report and the tension that I think we obviously see in this passage, the Lord answers with gracious and comforting words. And the way that he does this, (laughs) this is so interesting to me, the way he comforts his people is what? He, he comforts them by reminding them who and what he is. The text tells us that God says, I am jealous and I am angry. Boy, isn't that a comfort? How is that a comfort? You're in a bad spot. You're in dire straits. And the only one that can do something about it says, I'm going to comfort you. I'm ticked off. What does that mean? Let me explain. God's jealousy is not like our jealousy. We should know this. Human jealousy is a sinful reaction to someone else having something that we believe we should have. Very evident in younger kids, toys, snacks, this kind of thing, and evident in older kids as well, adults. But God's jealousy is not like that. It is not motivated by sin or wrong thinking. God's jealousy is his intense desire for what is rightfully his, namely his people. This is not a sinful desire. This is a holy passion for the apple of his eye, for his chosen people. So when God's people are mistreated, When they are in the valley of humiliation, as we're seeing in this vision, when other nations around Israel have poked and prodded and provoked and been wicked to God's people, God says, enough, I am a jealous God. They are my possession. They don't belong to you, they belong to me. And just like a father, he rises up 
on behalf of his children and says, I will not let this stand forever. We are God's people. We belong to him. Psalm 100 says, if you remember this, verse 3, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his, the sheep of his pasture. And God is jealous for you if you belong to him. It is good news for the people of God who are in a time of struggle and humiliation to know that God does not turn his back, he does not ignore what's going on, but his holy jealousy will be roused against the nations around Israel. But not only is he jealous, he is also angry. It says in verse 15 that he is again angry with great anger at the nations who are enjoying rest. So again, why is this good news? Why is this a comfort to God's people to hear that he is jealous and he is angry? Because, you could answer this if you've been paying attention, it is good news because of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness. And if that sounds like a broken record, you better get used to that sound because that's what we have. The fact that God is faithful to keep his word that he does not go back on his promise, that when he says, I will do A, B, and C, he will do A, B, and C. That is God's covenant faithfulness to his people in Zechariah. And if you belong to him now, it is God's promise to you. His anger against those who molest and mistreat his people is very great. And at the right time, he will act. Remember at the beginning, I said the significance of the names, that God, the Lord, remembers and will bless his people in due time. That's, that's what we're seeing. God is not ignorant of the situation that his people are in. And he will, at the right time, act. And he comforts his people by reminding them that he is God Almighty. Look at all of the times in this text that we see, thus says the Lord of hosts. The Lord was very angry. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. That is meant to communicate that the God we are dealing with, the God who is acting on behalf of his people, has no limit to his power, no limit to his authority, no limit to the extent of his sovereignty, and he will act on behalf of his people. That is what is going on. That is what we are seeing in this vision. It is a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. Now let's look at these last two verses. Verses 16 and 17. I just want to point out four things that God promises to his people through the prophet Zechariah. Four things, and this is also part of the comforting words that God speaks to his people to encourage them in their time of distress. Number one, God promises the return of his presence to his people. Verse 16, therefore thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. God is not returning in judgment. That's happened. That's why they are where they are as a people. God has allowed Babylon to take them into captivity and now they've returned and God says, okay, the judgment has happened. I'm going to return to you with mercy and he promises the return of his presence. Number two, God promises to restore stability. 
Let me read it, then I'll make a comment. The, the second half of verse 16. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Now we know that the building of a structure, the establishment of a permanent place, meant stability. No longer were the people going to be transient, no longer were they going to be nomadic and wandering around, but God was going to return them stability that they so desired. And just let that sink just for a second. It's been 70 years since they were taken into captivity. 70 years since they felt stability, permanence. My wife and I have moved around quite a bit in our 17 years of marriage, and there's been times where we've been displaced. You know, if you ever sell a house and you buy one, there's some timing gap and whatever. And during those times, even for a couple weeks, it just feels weird. It's like wearing a t-shirt backwards. Like, yeah, it just doesn't feel right. Imagine that for 70 years. Knowing you're God's people, knowing what he's promised to you, and now God calls them to return and he gives them this gracious and comforting message that he is going to restore stability to his people. Third, God promises rich blessings for his people. Look at verse 17. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. Where there once was poverty and need and lack and insufficient harvest and all of the things that the people had been struggling with, God says, you return to me, I'm going to return to you and I will bless you, just as the name Berechiah says, that the Lord will return and bless his people. Fourth and finally, God promises renewed favor. The end of verse 17, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. You can imagine that after 70 years, the people had started to wonder, is God even for us? Look at everything that we've been through. Look at the difficulty. Look at the damage that's been done to our homeland and to the temple and all these things. God says, no, I didn't forget you. I'll remember you and I'll restore to you the favor that I have promised to show. So God makes these promises to his people. Return to me and I will bless you in my time. Now I want to close by just giving you one thing to chew on. One thing to think about as you go on from here. And here's what it is. If you are a child of God's, that is, if you do not depend upon yourself for your right standing with God, if the blood of Jesus Christ has washed you from your sins and you depend upon him, then you can count on God's abundant mercy. You can have confidence that if you are in Christ, God will not return to you in judgment, but will return to you in mercy. Mercy is God withholding from his people what they justly and rightly deserve because of their sin. That's what it is for God to be merciful. Did Judah, in this context, did the people of God deserve punishment for their rebellion and sin against God? Yes. Did they deserve to have all the nations around them crush them like the worm that they were? Yes, but. <laughs> hmm. 
God shows mercy. Not because of them. Sure, he calls them to repent, to come back to him. But it is because of his faithfulness to keep his promise that God will be a God of mercy to you. Have you sinned and violated God's law? Have you strayed away from what you know to be true? Do you deserve hell and wrath? All of us are in that position. But God, remember this from Ephesians 2, God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even while we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So this morning, let this passage from Zechariah, from the Old Testament, from the post-exilic Jews, remind you that the mercy of God is never ending. And if you will return to him and cast yourself upon him for mercy, he will be merciful to you. Not because you are great, but because in his faithfulness, he's a God of covenant-keeping mercy. Father, we bow our knees to you and recognize that we are undeserving of your favor. We do not deserve to have you smile upon us. We deserve your wrath because of our sin and our rebellion against you. But just as you returned to your people in Zechariah 1, in mercy, so you will return to us if we will confess our sins. So God, hear us. And for those of us here that need a fresh start, we need a coming back. Would you, through your word and through your spirit, draw hearts unto yourself? And especially now, as we have the privilege of coming to the Lord's table, may this be an opportunity where we can come, maybe for the first time, with clean hands and a pure heart because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. So, Father, thank you for the privilege of hearing your word. And may we all be reminded that you are a God of faithfulness who will forgive our sins when we confess them to you. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.